You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a special Halloween rebroadcast of our episode on Diablo 3, which was originally released on YouTube on October 13th, 2014. <laughs> I cannot believe it's been that long. My guest scholar on this episode was my good friend, Dr. Michelle Brock, who is an assistant professor of history at Washington and Lee University. Mickey and I talk about Diablo's depiction of angels, demons, witches, demonic possession, and hell. In the time since this episode, Mickey has published a book with Rutledge entitled Satan and the Scots, The Devil in Post-Reformation Scotland. She also recently published an op-ed with the Washington Post entitled No, There is No Witch Hunt Against Powerful Men, which looks at the use of the term witch hunt with relation to Harvey Weinstein. Mickey is a fun and interesting scholar, and I encourage you to follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at M-I-K-K-I-B-R-O-C-K. With that introduction out of the way, here's the episode. Hi, this is Bob Whitaker. Welcome to History Respond. This week we're discussing Diablo 3, the latest installment in Blizzard's popular demon-hunting role-playing series. And although Diablo is set in a fantasy world, it draws a lot of its ideas from history, particularly paganism, Greek mythology, and early Christianity. To help me unpack this cultural legacy, I'm joined today by Dr. Michelle Brock, Assistant Professor of History at Washington and Lee University, and an expert on early modern demonology and witchcraft. Mickey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Mickey, this game depicts a world in which angels and demons commonly interact with humanity by taking corporeal form. You've got uh, the character Tyrael, who is an angel who falls to earth, takes on a mortal form. Uh, and you also have the lords of hell depicted in this game taking on physical form as uh, various forms of like foul beasts. This type of interaction where demons and angels are taking corporeal form seemed to be a common idea in the past, but now we often refer to these beings as bodiless spirits. When and why did this transition take place? Well, actually, since the, the period where early Christian theologians, I'm thinking of uh, Augustine here and others, were writing about the nature of demons and really trying to unpack exactly what types of, of bodies these demons might have had and the ways in which they might interact with humans, from the beginning, they, they really thought about um, demons and the devil himself as these aerial bodies, um, bodies that were in, incorporeal, sort of airy spirits was the language often used. But they had the ability to take corporeal form. Um, and that was really where the major temptations and really dangers of demons could lie. They could turn themselves at will um, into animals like dogs, 
serpent-type figures, very often humans. Um, they're commonly depicted as, as black males, um, sort of showing their absence of light. Um, it was also thought that the devil himself could transform into an angel of light and be very fearful in that way because he could deceive the human mind, which wasn't really uh, capable of discerning what was before them. Uh, so for a very long time, they, they've sort of had this, this dual characteristic, right, that in their actual form, they're aerial, they're incorporeal, but that actually makes, made in the minds of Christians, demons all the more terrifying because they could assume animal or human form and interact with the human world in that way. Um, the sort of most famous and, and, and sort of salacious example of this is demons taking the form of either an incubi or a succubi. Mm taking the form of a, a male demon that could sort of collect the, the seed of a, a real human and implant that into a, a woman, corporal woman that he would uh, have intercourse with, or a female taking the, the form of a, a succubi, female demon, um, and also seducing men in that way. So there's a lot of fears about the flesh and the body that are wrapped up into this idea that demons could take corporeal form and interact with humans on Earth. And you get a lot of that during, for example, the period of the witch trials where you have these great um, imaginings of these Sabbaths that basically turn into demonic orgies. Mm, all right. So a lot of this is uh, is very sexualized. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that that's largely a product, of, particularly of uh, medieval Christian society and in, into the um, early modern period, the 16th and 17th centuries, where sex was really very taboo. And so I think to a large extent, demons were sort of this reservoir of ungodly, unchristian behavior. And, and to some extent, the sort of reservoir of all these fantastical imaginings of what actually could not be enacted on Earth by humans. Um, and of course, uh, the, the people always believed that, that temptations of the flesh were sort of the worst types of temptations that individuals could fall prey to. And certainly that's the case in sort of thinking of the sexualizing of demons. Hmm. Um, I should add that, that Protestants, um, after the Reformation, were very much more interested in the ways in which demons and the devil could tempt humans internally. And that's when you start to really get a focus on the spiritual nature of demons, that incorporeal bodily spirits that you mentioned. That's when you really get a focus on demons within the minds of men, rather than taking these external corporeal forms. So it's really after the Protestant Reformation that you start talking more and more about demons um, in their spiritual form, but they always had the ability to transition to corporeal bodies. Interesting. So the angels and the demons in this game uh, have specific jobs. Diablo, the namesake for the game, is uh, called the Lord of Terror. The character I mentioned, Tyrael, falls to uh, Earth, is uh, actually the Angel of Justice. And so was this sort of vocation-specific demonology common in the past? And how were jobs determined for different angels and demons? People started to, to think quite a lot about the extent to which demons and angels fell into specific classifications and hierarchies during the Renaissance period. It's really in the, the latter part of the, the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance that you have these very elaborate classification systems developed. And in some ways, I think that almost parallels the professionalization of society at the time as well. Mm. Um, but I think... By and large, it was sort of a way to understand what people saw as this, these vast armies of demons. And so you have all these Renaissance demonologists who are basically putting demons into different camps based on, say, the nature of the demon, what sorts of powers do they have, what types of um, abilities to see into the minds of various humans, to tempt them, that sort of thing. There are classifications where different months have different demons that are the most powerful during a specific time of the year. Huh. Uh, you have uh, demons that are specifically created as, as pitted against certain saints 
right during the time of the, the high Catholic Church. So there's a lot of different sort of classification systems. Um, at the same time, you also get really remarkable estimations about how many demons there actually are, and partially that's as a result of the fact that Christian authorities sought to demonize all of the pagan gods. So that is to say, all the pre-existing pagan gods got sort of lumped into the demon camp, and then they had to sort out what types of demons those were. Uh, but people estimated, you know, over a hundred million demons um, as legions falling under the sway of Satan. So um, quite a terrifying reality if you believed it to be a reality during during the medieval period and, and into the early modern ones. Absolutely. And did, uh, I mean, you had mentioned that, you know, early Christian scholars, uh, theologians, they they took the, the whole wide world of uh, pagan uh, gods and goddesses as being part of the demon camp. Uh, but did did Christianity, early Christianity, borrow anything else from paganism that besides this kind of vocation-specific demonology? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, well, one of the things that I think is really interesting that, that you have happened in the early days is initially early... Christian theologians were not particularly concerned with weeding out pagan practices. In fact, they wanted to exploit them to a large extent. So, for example, if you have a population, say, in Anglo-Saxon England, and if you're coming over in the 6th century to Christianize them, if you have this population that believes in a supernatural, fantastical world filled with a whole host of, of fairy beings and elves and all of these creatures that fell within the gray zone, you have a population that's quite willing to believe in the possibility of a world filled with demons and angels and Christian ideas. And so to a large extent, uh, Christian authorities sort of co-opted what was already believed by those in pagan societies. And certainly the fact that pagans already had their feast days, their certain rituals or local deities or beings that they would pay homage to was pretty easily transitioned over into um, the Christian calendar and various mm. Christian holidays and festivities. So at least in the early days of Christianization, there was a fair amount of gray zone in, and it was allowed to persist certainly until the 11th and 12th century, um, where you have all of these Anglo-Saxon spells, for example, coming out of 8th and 9th century England, where people are basically making a very pagan concoction to try and get, what, get rid of elves. But then they say, you make this pagan potion, and you sing nine masses over it, and that gets rid of elves, right? So it's just a malformation <laughs> of pagan and Christian ideas. Mm, it makes Christianity a bit more uh, easily uh, palatable, I guess. Yeah, for, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really not until you get to the 12th, 11th and 12th century, really, that the, the papacy is expanding and its power of bureaucracy is expanding. And there's a really concerted effort to stamp out anything that existed in the gray zone. Now, people like uh, St. Augustine, for example, had since the, the 5th century really writing angrily about the sort of remnants of, of magical practices and those sorts of things and saying that all magic was demonic. There was no gray zone. But for the vast majority of ordinary Christians in the medieval period, they retained quite a bit of their paganism. And as long as they were going to church and ostensibly self-identifying as Christian, then the authorities were willing to sort of look the other way. Hmm. Well, uh, speaking of magical practices, this game includes a couple of uh, stereotypical depiction of witches, ah. uh, both of whom uh, end up betraying the character during the course of of the game. And so why are witches almost always depicted as untrustworthy women working for the devil? Yeah, absolutely. So the, so the roots of this are really quite quite biblical. 
right? So the, the stereotypical story, of course, is that that in, in Genesis where Eve is tempted by the serpent, who is not actually named as the devil. That's a much later reading of this, but tempted by the serpent, who's later reinterpreted as the devil. Um, and that sort of causes the entire downfall of, of humanity. The spiritual frailty of Eve from the very get-go is what sort of solidifies this idea of women as being easily tempted by the devil um, and, and by his demons. Uh, more broadly, women had a, a, just a weaker position in society. They tended to be in, in professions like uh, midwifery or just in general they were working around the home. And so the types of, of things like poisonings or miscarriages that were often attributed to witchcraft fell on the shoulders of women who happened to be in those domestic spheres where that might transpire. And in general, when you have a society where clerical celibacy, for example, is, is strictly enforced, and even into the Protestant era, sex outside of marriage is, is very frowned upon and indeed punishable, you have uh, women are sort of seen as uh, these lustful, carnal creatures that have the ability to tempt men away from the true path. And there's sort of mm. that element that's the part of it. So when you get these ideas and stereotypes of, of witchcraft, uh, women, because they are seen as susceptible to the wiles of the devil for biblical reasons, and because they're seen as carnal and lustful and spiritually weak, they're easy targets of witchcraft accusations. And also, as I said, because of their operation in the domestic sphere, this is, of course, where you get the broomsticks and the uh, over a boiling pot of, of poison sort of imagery, right? Because, because women existed in those worlds. Mm. Uh, women were basically uh, typecast because uh, they were <laughs> the lustful object of men, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And they also often existed in marginalized positions in society. I mean, some of them were widows. They basically had no legal standing of their own, no recourse to argue for themselves in court. And, and very often they, they remained on the margins of society, particularly if they were unmarried or if they didn't have a husband. So they were in a particularly vulnerable social position as well. Um, there's a there's a, also a famous witchcraft document that talks a lot about demons and the devil called the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, written in the 1480s. And it, it basically says that because women are derived from the, derived from the bent rib of Adam, sort of going back to the creation story, they are inherently imperfect and inherently bent as the rib was towards evil. So there you go. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, <laughs> facts facts being revealed here. Uh, so uh, are there any examples uh, either in uh, kind of early Christianity or elsewhere of male witches? Yeah, there are. You get depictions of male witches particularly coming out of places like Russia. It's sort of interesting. During the great heyday of the witch trials in early modern Europe where you have 100,000 people accused, up to 60,000 burnt or hung, um, of those 80, 80 to 85% were women. So you do have this this smaller percentage of of men, um, and in Eastern Europe and in and Russia in particular, a lot of those who are accused of witchcraft are actually men, which is really interesting. It's sort of an anomaly, and historians and scholars have explained that partially because these these men in Russian society, for example, tend to be in positions like um, that of a folk healer and that sort of thing that was under attack from the church. And also, others have postulated that Eastern Orthodoxy um, as a faith was less obsessed with the idea of the story of Eve and sort of the inherent spiritual frailty of, of women. Um, but in general, right. witchcraft, we say that it's a, it's a sex-related but not sex-specific crime. 
that is saying men would be accused, but it's more often women. The most famous example of a man accused, of course, is Giles Corey in Salem. And anybody who's read The Crucible has seen this, but he sort of gets accused of witchcraft. He, and he gets put to death by pressing, so laying a, a wooden platform on him and putting stones on it until he's pressed to death. And his sort of famous last words, a lot of people know, are more weight. You know, So he was a an quite outspoken male witch, but there weren't as many of them, certainly. Mm. So kind of switching tracks here, the game the game pits you against uh, the armies of hell, which include reanimated corpses, skeletons, uh, as well as different types of beasts like uh, spiders, and then also uh, kind of hilariously uh, bipedal goats. Yes. Uh, and why are these types of creatures so commonly related to demons and the devil, and has this always been the case? Well, the, with regard to the, the bipedal goats, actually, I mean, that it, most early depictions of the devil, and indeed all, all the way through um, the 18th century, and even today if you look at movies and TV shows, very often the devil and demons are uh, depicted as sort of these goat-like or horned figures. Um, and to a large extent that comes out of the, the sort of reorientation of a number of pagan gods by Christian authorities, um, most famously the, the Greco-Roman deity Pan, but other other ones, the Babylonian bull god Nimrod, there are others that were reinterpreted by Christian authorities as not being pagan deities, but rather being demons. And so you get sort of the borrowing of this sort of imagery. I also think one of the things that a lot of people have noticed is angels are normally depicted wearing clothing, but devil and demons are normally seen as naked and also in animal-like ways. And the reason because that is because, A, the nakedness displays their flesh. It displays the fact that they're fleshly beings rather than spiritual beings. And also the features of things like horns or being half animal or claws shows their beastliness rather than the humanity. And so there's mm. really that sort of emphasis. Mm. Um, of course, with things like corpses and skeletons, right, those are symbols of death and destruction, um, which according to uh, Christian theology, as well as sort of other um, pre-Christian religions, symbolize death and destruction and, and these sorts of things, which are the purview of demons and, and the devil. So that's part of it, too. But I think, by and large, it's basically those images were used throughout the history of Christianity to display the extent to which demons and the devil were anti-human. Mm. Right. And, and to often and you get sort of those types of stereotypes put onto different heretical groups, too. You often get these sort of depictions of, of heretics in those those bestial ways as well. So it's sort of a not only a way to think about demons and the devil as anti-human, but also a way to demonize other people by portraying them as beastly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you can definitely get a sense of that in the game where most of the demons, most of the creatures that you fight aren't wearing any sort of clothing. Right. Uh, but then the angels that you encounter, they're wearing this, uh, you know, magical armor with uh, wings and, uh, uh, you know, hoods uh, and look quite spectacular uh, yeah. compared to the demons that you encounter. That's absolutely commiserate with the with the way that they would have been portrayed in both art and literature during the much of the the medieval and early modern period. So the game's the game's right on with that one. Cool. All right. So your primary goal in this game is to capture the souls of demons in an object called the Black Soul Stone. Uh, where did this idea of capturing souls in objects or inside people come from, and how did this appear in the past? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Immediately when um, when I was watching footage of the game and, and hearing about that, I th immediately thought of Horcruxes, right, and the Harry Potter um, <laughs> ideas. 
Well, really, the idea of the soul detached from the body is an ancient one. I mean, this is not this is certainly not something um, that was developed by the Abrahamic religions, right? You have this in, in a whole host of other pre pre Christian ancient traditions. The idea that the soul was detached and could be contained in other objects. Um, there are actually quite a lot of stories that date from early Russian and Slavic religions of various individuals, sort of evil wizards that could not be killed. Um, and the reason they couldn't be killed is because they would take their soul out of their bodies and hide it, you know, hide it in an animal or bury it somewhere um, and put it on an island that people couldn't reach to. All these sorts of displacements of the souls purposely so that no true death could be had. Mm. And those are, those are pre-Christian ideas you get in, in folklore in a whole host of different ways. And so I think the sort of desire to capture the souls of, of demons in for a particular object is sort of a, a way that people imagine that demons could be destroyed. Um, now, I should say that, that I almost never see that type of language capturing the soul almost ever. In fact, I, I haven't seen it in anything written by Christian authority. Mm. And that's partially because according to Christian theology, after death, the soul either departs immediately to heaven, to hell, or to purgatory in the Catholic tradition. So there would be no room for the said capturing of souls according to, to stricter Christian theology. But certainly the, the sort of magical idea that you could capture a soul um, has been popular in a lot of indigenous traditions and ancient traditions that, that far predate Christianity. Hmm. What about uh, demonic possession? I mean, there's a little bit of that in this game where uh, one of the main characters ends up uh, being possessed by Diablo, uh, and that's the way that he takes corporeal form. What, what, what is the, you know, kind of the history of the idea of demonic possession? Well, it's, I mean, it's scriptural, right? There's, um, there's an element, there's elements of scripture where they talk about Jesus sort of driving demons from, from the souls of, of individuals. And so, um, this idea that demons could possess someone and take corporal form in that way has a, a, a very ancient history. Um, and so you have accounts all through the early medieval period into the later Middle Ages and into the early modern period of different groups that are experiencing, or I, I would say performing possession, mm. um, the idea that, that that this was the best way for the devil to get inside and take corporeal form by possessing a body. Um, so a very, a very long tradition of, of that. And you have it happening in individual cases of, of young people performing possession. You have it happening during the medieval period in, in rashes of nuns saying that they were possessed. And there were, um, it's interesting, there are different ways to interpret possession. Some people would interpret it as a sort of a, a possession that, if overcome, could prove that this person was very truly one of God's children, very truly pious, if you overcome and sort of fought for the devil to be out of you. Um, but then there were other traditions, the Calvinist tradition in particular, um, that sort of said, well, hey, if you get possessed by a demon or the devil, that's probably a sign that you're damned hmm. and not that you're one of God's children. So unsurprisingly, actually, there are not many possessions in Calvinist countries, probably because of that very belief. Hmm. So it's quite interesting. But the, the different responses of Catholics and Protestants as well to possession is, is interesting. Of course, if you're Catholic and someone is possessed, there are all these rituals of exorcism that you can perform using holy water, various types of, of objects and um, symbols. But for Protestants, if someone's possessed, 
pretty much all you can do is pray at them um, because you've had had all of those sort of um, intermediary objects and, and symbols and saints removed. Uh, so only scripture can get rid of the possession. And so it makes for some inter different accounts in, in Protestant and, and Catholic countries of possession. But it's a very sort of ancient phenomenon. I shouldn't say ancient, but early Christian phenomenon that's based in scripture. The game depicts hell as a place filled with fire and brimstone and is populated by this uh, grotesque menagerie of creatures. Uh, where did this depiction of hell come from and how has this depiction of hell changed over time? Yeah, so early church writers, um, really we're talking 2nd and 3rd century here, uh, picked up New Testament language from places like Matthew, Peter, Jude, Revelation, um, the epistles and, and those sorts of, of places. And they picked up the language that depicted hell as a place of eternal torment for the wicked, where fire was a really prevalent means of punishment. Um, so it really is, again, here, scriptural, the basis of that conception of hell. And from the onset, right, if you describe hell as a place where people are burning for eternity, um, and people got really creative with describing hell, you know, Dante would describe it as um, particularly terrible for with direct relation to whatever crime you committed, right? If you were someone who had been a glutton in your life, and that's one of the seven deadly sins, then indeed hell would be filled with people pouring hot molten metal down your throat, right? Mm. Very creative depictions of suffering. Um, and it's a powerful incentive to conversion and good behavior, right? To have this sort of actual physical place of hell where you could go after you die. I mean, people across the board, really, throughout the Middle Ages, believe in this sort of external physical place of hell where people would be um, eternally punished for what they did. Um, but you could never die. I mean, you would uh, suffer from this punishment for your entire life. Um, I should also note that purgatory was viewed as also being a place of sort of fire and a bit of torment, but it was more of a lighter fire, a cleansing fire, if you will, to sort of cleanse you before you went on um, to heaven. Mm. Uh, a bit of a spa of retreat, right? Yes, a spa. Yes, yes. The, the most <laughs> uncomfortable spa retreat ever. <laughs> Folks during the Reformation, like, like John Calvin, um, took up the view that the language in the New Testament about hell, uh, things like fire, darkness, gnawing worms, whatever, was much more metaphorical, wasn't really a literal, it wasn't really a literal torment by fire and grotesque creatures and that sort of thing. And, and basically these reformers said that that these elements of fire were designed to evoke the believer's imagination rather than to depict it um, exactly. But certainly Protestants thought that hell was a place where you went and you suffered because of permanent estrangement from God. And Protestants were quite willing to use the sort of literal descriptions of hell, even if they meant it in a metaphorical way, because again, um, pastorally, this is a really useful way to um, incentivize good behavior. Now, mm. over time, in, in modern day, Christians, um, particularly those of sort of the mainline or liberal Protestant um, divisions, tend to sort of see hell as much, much more uh, metaphorical, and even the devil is metaphorical, so it's perhaps something you experience on earth in terms of estrangement from God, um, and the sort of punishment that you endure because of that. Um, and the trend in recent years has really been towards a more universalist conception of salvation, that is, hell is what happens on earth, but everybody eventually goes to heaven because the death of Christ was for everybody. And so that's been sort of the tradition, at least in more more mainline liberal Protestant churches, although certainly Protestant, certain Protestant denominations and Catholic denominations will still grab onto the idea of hell as a physically external place. So it has um, evolved quite a lot. Mm, interesting, yeah. 
You know, what about this idea? I mean, the game has the character, player character, actually going to hell as uh, still being alive. I mean, are there any instances of that, of, you know, early Christianity where uh, people visit hell uh, or even visit heaven uh, before they've actually died? And and return, do they return, does she return back to Earth? They return back to Earth, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you don't really have that in, that I've seen in, in Christian um Writings, although you do have people, and, and I've seen this in my work on Scotland, people telling of dreams, profoundly dr- vivid dreams that they have, that they go to hell, um, and they, they see the, the torment before them, and they have a vision of the great beast and the fire and the masses of, of those suffering eternally. And then they, they awake with this sort of profound relief that they're not yet in hell, and of course it's a, a good incentive again to, to proper behavior. Um, but I think that shows how much the ideas of hell permeated the psyche. Um, but I haven't actually, you know, that seems, that strikes me actually as a very sort of Greco-Roman portrayal of the underworld, right, that you mm. can take it and return from. Um, that seems like something much more out, out of Homer than out of anything from, from early Christian um, writers. But that that's really quite fascinating that they get to come back, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, I mean, why do you think we have this continued fascination in the West and with uh, the devil and demons. I mean, you know, Diablo 3 is a incredibly popular game in its own right. It's sold uh, over 20 million copies uh, in the past couple of years. Uh, and the series itself uh, looks like it's not anywhere close to stopping. So, I mean, what about uh, this fascination with devils and demons in society? Are we, are we getting any closer to getting over it? Or do you think it's going to be something that's with us for a long time? Well, I think I think it will be with us for a very long time, and I think one of the main reasons for that is because, you know, it's really hard to you generally don't move beyond very quickly, um, you know, two thousand years of of history and something being a really profoundly important symbol. I mean, the very reason that the idea of demons and the devil in particular, the reason the devil became so important, is because the devil provided an answer to the problem of evil in the world. Right? That is to say, if you have a benevolent, loving, all-good God, then how do you explain the fact that there are babies dying, there are plagues of pestilence, there are um, wars ravaging the country? How do you explain those things? And the devil arose as a solution to that problem um, and, and becomes increasingly important um, as a sort of arbiter, not just of, of all things evil, but also even of, of God's wrath. And so um, I think I think just the presence of, of what people continue to perceive as evil in the world will ensure, at least in some circles, the continued belief in the devil and demons as the sort of ultimate source of that evil. I think at a more primal level or at a more um, just level of, of, of human groups across the, the world, I think believing in things that are otherworldly, that are anti-human, that are that really make a mockery, that really invert everything that's good and human about society, has a profound appeal. I mean, the thing about depictions of the devil and demons as being these grotesque creatures involved in all sorts of behavior that's appalling to us is that these inversions really serve to validate cultural norms. Right, the very fact that they're mm. overtly inverting good behavior and good practice actually reaffirms that good behavior and good practice. And I think that's a, that's a very um, useful social um, and cultural 
tool. It provides a really important function. Uh, I also think it's just fascinating. I mean, at the end of the day, right, that I mean, clearly if you look at Halloween costumes that are being advertised right now, I mean, I could get multiple types of devil costumes for my golden retriever, right, although I won't. Um, but yeah, I think we'll find something <laughs> sort of grotesque and, and almost humorous about the devil. I mean, that's an interesting paradox, right, that even though you have this figure that's so terrifying, you also have elements um, that are jokey or laughy or um, making a mockery of the devil. Then um, I think you know one of my students once explained this as well. If you don't, if you don't laugh, you cry. So you almost have to sort of make this terrifying figure into a, a the butt of jokes to sort of lessen your fear and be able to exist in a world where you believe this figure is really quite um, relevant. So I think our continued fascination is a whole host of things. I think we want to understand evil in the world. I think we're fascinated by figures that appear to be so other um, and to invert the world in such a way that it affirms our pre-existing conceptions of how things ought to be. And I also think the devil is just the best anti-hero you can feasibly have. I mean, since um, Milton, you've, you've had this sort of fascination with, with this figure that's the epitome of evil, but also in some ways is depicted as being um, scarily and surprisingly human too. So I think um, all of those things are going to ensure um, the fact that the devil will remain good fodder for video games and TV shows and, and movies and, and the like. Well, on that note, uh, that's going to wrap things up for us here at History Respawn. Thanks again to Dr. Michelle Brock for joining us on the show, and please tune in for more episodes. 